0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. All right, the book of Zechariah again tonight in chapter number 4. I'll just read verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? That's what we have been speaking about over the last two evenings. We've been dealing with the subject of how God uses small things. On Monday night, we began to talk about uh the the small things that God has used down through the years we spoke about the plagues in Egypt we spoke spoke about Rahab the harlot and the scarlet cord and how that she was uh she was spared by that small thing you think about a lad with a lunch and just a small little thing but God took it and did the unbelievable with that small little thing we went to Proverbs 30 on Monday and really primarily Bore down on those four creatures, the ant and the coney, the locust and the spider, about, about preparing ourselves, about protecting ourselves, partnering together with those who are of the same mind and have the same heart, participating with them. The spider being perseverant and sticking with it until God takes us as a little thing and uses us for His grandest glory uh, so that He is well pleased with what we do as a small thing. We spoke last night a little bit about the word of Samuel to Saul when he made this statement in chapter 15, verse 17 of 1 Samuel. He said, when thou wast little in thine own side. He said, that's when I was able to use you. And Vance Havner made this statement. He said, a man who is too big for a small place is too little for a big place. We, we cannot be used by God as an individual, as a congregation, as a church in a, in a community, until we get small enough in our sight to realize that God doesn't need us. We need Him. And as long as we are just simple tools in the toolbox of God, He and His sovereignty will pick us up and use us for His glory right where we are, for His good, and for our good and His glory. On Monday night, we bore down a little bit on Gideon and him not viewing himself as God viewed himself and or God viewed him and how that he allowed his fear uh, to perpetuate this idea with inside of him that he didn't have the ability to do what God knew he could do as long as he was submissive to God. Last night, we began to introduce ourselves to Zechariah a little bit in regard to who he is, and then get a little bit of understanding about what Zerubbabel was doing. He being the, uh, the man in charge of the project, uh, of the building of the temple, as Ezra would lead and guide in that direction with the plan, and then he would oversee the building Zerubbabel is building the church. He is working on what we would call the church. He's building a temple. We said on last night, just a handful of things, that the church is the most important thing in the economy of God. It is the church, not parachurch church organizations. It is the church through which God does His work It is the church that God is sanctioned. It is the church that God is blessed. And so oftentimes the church has passed off its responsibility to parachurch organizations who we feel do a better job at reaching the world with the gospel of Christ when if we would take our responsibility as seriously as God takes it for us, it would be untelling of what we could do for the glory of God If we took our responsibilities seriously. Last night we said that the church is the foreordination of God before the foundation of the world. That its foundation is Christ itself. That the fair of the church is the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5. He gave himself for the church. And if he gave himself for the church, and if I am being conformed to the image of that same Christ, then I should be giving myself to it. We talked about the focus of the church. The Bible said that He put all things under Jesus' feet and He made Him head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1.22 And therefore, the church and its absolute, uh, its, its absolute uh, responsibility essentially is to bow in submission to the Lordship of Christ and allow Christ to be head over all things. And if we submit ourselves to Him... He will do His work through us, through the church of the living God. Last night, we ended by talking about the pressure that Zerubbabel was under. The Bible said that when Zechariah introduces this text to us, he is awakened out of sleep as God begins to show him the vision of the golden candlestick. And the two olive trees, and all of the oil that's being pumped into the candlestick, which is a type of the church. We said that you sleep because of three reasons. You labor, and therefore you are tired. Many people are under the pressure of labor. And if only one person or one handful of people are doing the vast majority of the labor in the local church, there is the pressure that is put upon them by the lack of effort from others, and that labor causes pressure, strain, and weariness. And may I say that it is typically true that 10% of any local church does 90% of the work that is being done. And therefore, if you could have one group of people that completely sells out to do a grand work for the glory of God... It would be, to use another southern colloquialism, untelling what a church could do. I know a church right now in the mountains of western North Carolina that's making unbelievable strides for the kingdom of God. Unbelievable strides. The church is only about 85 people strong. They have very few people in their church. But it is a requirement if you join their church that you must be actively involved in the ministries of the church or you are not allowed to join. They will not allow you to attend their church just to sit and enjoy the preaching and to sit and enjoy the singing. If you are uncommitted to be involved, you are not welcomed to be there. The men who come have to get CDL licenses to drive the tractor and trailer trucks that will haul the materials in disaster relief or missions supply around the United States? There has to be a commitment to, will I get my pilot's license to fly one of the fleet of planes that our church owns to get the missionaries to the field and to get the supplies to them that they need? Am I committed to work in the Christian school? Am I committed to work in the Bible college? Am I committed to work in the mission board to see to it that our missionaries are cared for. And the unbelievable strides that they're making with their radio station, with their disaster relief ministries, they have a four-wheel drive ministry that the men of the church all own four-wheel drive trucks. They all own chainsaws. And when the snowstorms hit, the first place that the sheriff's office and the hospital calls is this local independent Baptist church to get them to hit the roads, to carry people to their doctor's appointments, to carry uh, medical personnel to their jobs. That is the ministry of this local church, feeding literally thousands of homeless people and poor people in the mountains of western North Carolina. And it is a church that does unbelievable work with few. Do you know why? Why? Because they're all committed to work together. And therefore the pressure and strain lies not on one or two in the body, but it is spread abroad throughout the whole body. The second thing we said last night was that laziness causes pressure. If there is a lazy preacher, he's constantly under pressure. And the church is under pressure because they're not being fed. They're not being led. And then sometimes people get low, and it brings pressure, as was the case with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter number 19, where that he was under this pressure that led him into the wilderness, under the juniper tree, and led him into what we would call clinical depression. Now tonight, I want to pick up and I want to continue, but I I want you to hold your place here, and let's go back, if you would, to Ezra and chapter number 3. In Ezra chapter number 3, I want us to look at this again. If I may, we read it on last night. I'd like to delineate it for you just a little bit, if the Lord would allow. In Ezra chapter number 3 and verse 12 and 13, these are the verses that I feel we need to apply a little bit this evening. In verse number 12, the Bible said this, "But But many of the priests and Levites and the chief fathers... Who were ancient men that had seen the first house. In other words, they had seen Solomon's temple. Now, I want to, I want to get to that in a minute. I, I really want to dig into that if I can. So when they had seen that first house, when the foundation of this house, when the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple, when that house was laid before their eyes, here was their response. They wept. And the Bible said, brother Joshua, that they wept with a loud voice. This was very emotionally effective to them. Then the Bible said, and, this coordinating conjunction, and was used to talk about a different group of people. The Bible said there were many, just as there were many that wept, there were many that shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13 said, "...so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people." For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Now now let's kind of dig in. Zerubbabel has gone up to Jerusalem. He has left his homeland. Let's be very frank with each other. Zerubbabel has only known Babylon. That's all he's ever known. He's only grown up there. He has experienced Babylonian times, Babylonian food but he has been told about his, his, up, his family and his rearing and his people, and there is something within inside of him. There's a call upon his life to go back. God sends him back for the rebuilding of this temple, and Zerubbabel lays the foundation of the temple. Now, it is not as Solomon's temple. When you go back to the book of 1 Kings and you read about Solomon's temple, it was a grand and glorious structure. It was a wonder of the world. It was worth billions and billions of dollars. It was phenomenal what the Lord allowed in Solomon's temple. Now there is not the wealth and there is not the workers to get done with what Zerubbabel's doing in regard to a comparison of what Solomon put together. Now when he gets there, he does his best. He puts his best work forward. And when he is done laying this and building upon this, it is, he is sitting back saying, well, what do you think? What do you, I, I've done my best. I've tried to give it my... What do you think? The Bible said that there were men who came who had seen the first temple. And when they saw the first temple, and they looked at what Zerubbabel had built, they began to weep. And they began to cry, because it was a small work. It wasn't a grand work. It wasn't a glorious work. It was a small work. And they began to weep. Now let's consider this, if you will. There were 70 years of allotted captivity, Right? 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, there was a freedom. But that temple, according to some writers, was not being built until nearly a 100 years after the captivity. Now let's give some consideration. During the days of Hezekiah, which was way prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking over, even Hezekiah was stripping off the gold from Solomon's temple and giving it over to Syria because they were coming down and piling in on him. In other words, for many, many years, kings in the southern kingdom were robbing the house of God of its grandeur and of its glory. These men who had seen Solomon's temple and said, this is not as beautiful as Solomon's temple used to be, they never did see it in its grandest glory. They weren't old enough to have seen it in its grandest glory. They had to have been at least a hundred years old. If they had seen that Solomon's temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, These men had to have been little children and they could not have seen it when Solomon put it out with its greatest grandeur. They couldn't have. And they are looking at a temple, Solomon's temple, that had been raped, robbed, and destroyed by king's hands and they are saying this is grander than what this man by the name of Zerubbabel has done. Now isn't it amazing how people can be so critical of a small work that's doing something with all of its heart for God, looking back and comparing it to something that's already gone downhill. That being said, notice with me four things in this text. First of all, notice the size of the doubt. The Bible said in verse number 12 that many of the priests and Levites were in on this business. The size of the doubt. I want us to understand that when we decide to do something for God and we become committed to that, do not expect that Satan is going to set back and allow you to march through the work of God to the work of God, on with the work of God, without facing opposition. I remember when I decided that I was going to accept God's call upon my life to the ministry. I literally thought, please forgive me for my ignorance. I was fairly young in my mid-twenties when I accepted the call to ministry. I literally thought, Satan now knows I'm serious about serving God and I'm not going to face as many battles as I have faced heretofore boy was i wrong it kicked on me something ferocious bad i mean satan has fought me i was preaching in a preacher's conference a timothy conference back in when was it joe april whatever it was i was preaching in a timothy conference and i told all of these young preachers and young pastors i said i have been pastoring for over 32 years and in this amount of time i haven't Had one year without problems. Not one. I've gone through year after year and I'm talking about some doozies. I mean big ones. I've had big problems to deal with. God has been good, but the battle has been on. I don't pastor a large church. I don't pastor this grand work that is looked at by all of the periodicals and held up as the, you know, as the work that needs to be looked at as some kind of a litmus test for who you need to be. I don't do that. I'm just pastoring a small church in a small place in a farming community with not a lot of people. As you are. And so as I look, most of, the, most of the problems that I have, the size of them is big. Number two, notice the source of the doubt. Not only the size, but the source. Who was it that was giving them the most trouble? The priest and the Levites and the chief fathers? In other words, it was those who ought to know better. This was the religious crowd of the day. Oftentimes, our greatest ridicule and our greatest opposition comes from those that we ought to be receiving support from, encouragement from. But you will receive more discouragement from quote-unquote God's people than you will from the unregenerate world. I will be very frank with you. I, I, I have been better received by people who absolutely are God-cussing heathen. They love me and they pay attention more to what I have to say as I speak into their lives than most Christians do. I I remember I was standing in the firing range recently uh, getting ready to shoot and and, uh, there was a lieutenant that was standing there and he was was, uh, just cursing up a storm and cursing up a storm and cursing up a storm and... And everybody's standing around laughing because the preacher's standing there, and all of a sudden he made this statement, he said, he said, "Yeah, I better I've been told I' better watch my mouth. There's a preacher around here and all, you know how that is, and everybody's laughing. I said, "Hey, buddy, look over here." I said, "You do you be who you are. I'm not asking you to be anybody else, but here's what I want you to understand: I'm going to be me." And when you can't stand me for being me, then I can't stand you for being you." And he looked at me and he said, that's fair enough. Do you know what that man's done since that point in time? Hey preacher, I need to sit down and talk to you about some personal things. I really need some leadership and direction in these areas in my life. Do you realize, I don't have the problem from the outside world that I have from the saved world. Quote, unquote, saved. I guess they are. The source of most of your difficulties as you do a work for God comes from people you ought not to have a problem with. Right. Number three. Notice the, the spring of the doubt. Where did it come from? It came from those who wanted things to be the way they used to be. You know what I think I've learned about the old days? the good old days really wasn't all that good i have i I, I readily come i readily talked to our church about the fact that i was born way 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 too late I, i really would have been. i feel like i would have made a better circuit riding preacher i don't mind riding horses i don't mind doing that we we own horses at the farm i i have no problem with that i I don't mind being in a place with no electricity and no water. I don't mind any of that. I don't mind braving the elements. That's not a big deal for me. And I feel like I would really have rather fit in during the days of Peter Cartwright when somebody come in to mess up your church service and you just knock them out and keep preaching. I really would love that. Would love that. But do you know what? God didn't put me in 1855. He put me here for such a time as I'm living in now. And I cannot live in yesterday. I've got to live with the plans of God today going forward. The spring of the doubt. Notice the separation that the doubt brings in the text. The Bible said there was an old group who sorrowed and there was a new group that shouted. God always has a way of bringing new life in with new encouragement and with new joy and with a new excited heart genuinely wanting to do something for God that will encourage you along the way. Now, let's consider this as we wind our way down. So as as Zerubbabel deals with a couple of things, he deals with God's plan. I got this church I want you to build. He deals with the pressure that it's coming on and it's pressing in on him. But he's also got to deal with some problems. In Zechariah four, I think you're there. Zechariah four, I do want you to catch this phrase in verse seven. Look down to verse seven. In verse seven. He he doesn't say, it's as important what he doesn't say as it is what he said. He doesn't say, what art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Notice what he said. He said, who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Here's what I want to get to, and I want to reiterate this if I may. Our greatest problems are not what's. Our greatest problems have faces. They are who's. If we ever get a hold of that, God would help our heart. It was in Galatians chapter number 5 when the Apostle Paul is wanting to deal with the difference between the Spirit-filled life and the works of the flesh that's manifest in the believers' lives that he was dealing with at Galatia. He was dealing with a lot of issues there at Galatia and he made this statement. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5 verse number 7, he said, you were running well. He said, you did run well. He did not say, what, what did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? He said, my question is, who was it that hindered you, that kept you from obeying the truth? Who was it? Now, if I were to ask you, are you doing as well individually for the Lord as you could? And you answered, Pastor, I'm really struggling. My next question is going to be this to you. Not what is making you struggle? Who is making you struggle? It may be the man in the mirror. It may be the spouse in the bed. It may be the children in the other room. It may be the man on the job. It may be the friends at the bowling league. I, I don't know, but I want to I promise you, there is human influence somewhere that is affecting your life. So, if that be so, what did what was it that they were having to deal with during Zechariah and Ezra's, Ezra's time? So, let, let me plod through it fast. In Ezra 10, the Bible said that Ezra rose up from before the house of God. He went in the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, and he didn't drink, and he mourned. And the reason he was mourning was over the transgression of them that had been carried away. In Nehemiah 13, when Nehemiah is dealing with the exact same problem as Ezra and Zerubbabel were dealing with there in Jerusalem, he was dealing with the problem that they were marrying the wrong people and they were getting involved in immorality and they were getting involved in relationships that they shouldn't be involved in. And this depravity was affecting the church. I want you to know that the church of the living God, as Pastor Allison said on last night, is filled with people. And the independent Baptist people aren't the problem. People are the problem. It doesn't matter if it's at the local school. It doesn't matter if it is at the Lions Club. It doesn't matter if it's at the Little League. It doesn't matter if it's at work or at church. People are problems. We are not depraved. I want you to understand, we're not depraved people. We are T-totally depraved people. We are completely depraved. God did not save our flesh when He saved our soul. And there are people that really have issues with sin even inside the local church. Some several, well, it's a year or so back, there was a young man, if you don't mind me giving this personal illustration, there was a young man who took to social media to decry that because I said publicly on social media that the independent Baptist did not have a systemic problem with immorality in the pulpits, they thought that I took no stand against immorality in the pulpit. Now nothing could be any further from the truth. The fact is, a systemic problem means it's in every problem, in every pulpit. The truth is, the majority of Baptist pulpits are being filled by, with, with men who genuinely want to honor and serve God with all of their heart and soul. It's not a systemic problem, but it is a problem. And I believe that men who violate morality behind the pulpit and they live in sin, moral sin, as preachers need to get out of the ministry, get a job, and serve in the local church when they get right with God. Not be put back in the pulpit. And so this young man decried the fact that we didn't take a strong enough stand according to him. Now this man grew up in Jack Howe's styled churches, that flavor, and that's all he had ever known. I said, sir, I I preached to thousands of people a year who don't even know who that man is. I said, they have no idea who he is. I said, we're an anomaly to what you're talking about. And he left that style of church, joined a contemporary, non-denominational church, uh, hyper-Calvinist church who had a heart for God and a heart for souls and, and no heart for the King James Bible and no heart for conservatism in any way, but they love people. They love people. And there's none of those problems there. Until he found out that the new pastor that he loved, he is sharing his wife with other men inside of that church. And now this little gentleman is not even a christian any longer you see what he found out was sin and depravity is everywhere and it's got to be preached against and dealt with as a church if if you get involved in immorality as a member of the galilee baptist church we are going to restore you to spiritual health if you will allow us to that means multiple multiple weeks of counseling It means you addressing the church about the issue that you have had and making it right with the church and the church loving you back to spiritual health. It means that if you rebel against the church when it comes to them dealing with you, uh, we will exercise discipline on you to remove you from the church and we will still pursue you to get you right with God, but we're not going to bypass sin. We're not going to do it. And so that brings pressure on little churches. We'll always be little if we just constantly deal with people's problems when they come in the church. But do you really want to have the kind of growth that not dealing with sin brings? I'd rather have five under a shade tree and know that we're doing it right than to have buildings full of people, millions of dollars in debt, and be worried about when this thing is going to fly apart. I'd rather that be the case. God works in small things, but depravity is something that needs to be dealt with. Despite, Zechariah and Zerubbabel had to deal with those that despised what they were trying to do. But does God use small things? He doesn't use small things just because they're small. He uses small things because people have bigger visions than just the small. In the 1700s, George Whitfield was coming through from Georgia. He was making his way up north into the New England states for the purpose of preaching as he oft did. And as he was coming through North Carolina from Georgia, he stopped in a town called Newburn. And in Newburn, he began to try to preach. And North Carolina was the only state, we call them states now, the only place, the only colony where no one would give him a listening ear. North Carolina was wicked. He said, we can find a dance instructor in every town in Hamlet, but we cannot find a church and a preacher. On December the 25th of that year, he sat down on Christmas Day and he wrote his prayer out to God in his journal asking God if he would, kind sir, to send a preacher to North Carolina not knowing that it would be 15 years before that prayer was answered. It wasn't long until he was up here in the New England states, in Connecticut, he preached. And there was a Congregationalist at the age of 39 years by the name of Shubal Stearns who said, I want to get saved. And he got saved and he became a part of the New Lights movement of the Congregational Church. There was a split in the Congregational Church and in, even in his New Lights condition, he began to see water baptism as immersion and only for the regenerated It was then that he went to a Baptist preacher in Connecticut by the name of Wade Palmer. And Wade Palmer baptized him and he started preaching in a Baptist church in Connecticut. It wasn't long after that, his brother Daniel Marshall had been here in Pennsylvania ministering to the Indians. The French and Indian War broke out and they decided they would move south. Daniel Marshall and his family, Shubel Stearns and his family, moved into Virginia. When they got into Virginia, they tagged up with and began to minister in and with some of the churches that were a part of the Philadelphia Baptist Association, which was Calvinist and, by the way, very dead. These men were very lively. They knew that they didn't really fit there. And it was at that time, 1755, when a letter was mailed to, De- to Stearns. Shubal Stearns took that letter and opened it, and it was addressed from New Bern, North Carolina. The lady in the letter said, Mr. Stearns, we need preachers in North Carolina. If you could, sir, if you could make your way, if God would see fit for you to make your way to North Carolina, we believe that people will travel from all over this colony to hear you preach. He prayed about it. He and Daniel Marshall, and they felt like that they really were being drawn by God there. They sent word to some of their friends, and just a handful of couples decided to make their way to North Carolina. They said, where are we going? Are we going to New He said, I know we're going to North Carolina. I just don't know where we're going. We're going to go until the Holy Spirit directs us where to settle down. And they did. As they came into North Carolina, they made their way over toward Liberty, North Carolina. When they got to Liberty, North Carolina, there was a little community called Sandy Creek. And they they saw this place where two roads came together. It sat upon a hill. And they decided that they would start a church right there. They pitched tent, did not start building their houses. They built the church first. The church is sitting there to this very day. Built in 1755. I was just in the church, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago. And it's open. It's a wonderful place for you to go. And so they started that church called Sandy Creek Baptist Church. And they started it with about eight people, eight couples, about 16 people that had come down with their children, of course. And they started that little church. And when they constituted the church with less than 20 people, they went ahead and voted in two. Assistant pastors. Two assistant pastors with less than 20 people. In one year, over 600 people were crowding into that little building that is smaller than just this set of chairs right here. 600 people. People were traveling from all over those farming communities And getting born again by the grace of God, men were surrendering to preach and they were sending men out by the droves. They started churches as far north up to the Potomac River, as far west as the Mississippi River, all the way to the coast of the Atlantic, and all the way down into Georgia. Daniel Marshall came back up into Virginia and they started churches there He then came into my county where I live in South Carolina. He and two other preachers they began to start churches in what's called the Welsh Neck Baptist Association there. And then Daniel Marshall felt called of God to go into, into Georgia. And he was the first Baptist preacher in Georgia. He went into Georgia and started the church in Georgia. They tried to throw him out. He led the constable and the judge to the Lord that brought him into court. And when the Revolutionary War took place, most all preachers left what we now know as the state of Georgia. He refused to leave. He stayed there through the Revolution and led people to Christ and had revival and built churches all the way through the Revolution. It was during this time that as the church was growing, Governor William Tryon, uh, he was a provincial governor, there in the in the colony of north carolina decided we got to get these people out of here taxes were raised and levied these people these dirt farmers in that piedmont region could not pay their taxes and british troops were coming in and taking their homes taking their animals even going so far as taking the very clothes from their back to pay their taxes it was then that one of the battles took place prior to the revolution that led to, really, what we have today. It's called the Battle of Alamance. Some refer to it as the War of the Regulators. When this war took place, not all, but many, many, many of the soldiers that fought against the British were Baptist members of Baptist churches. They stood up for for their freedom they stood up against tyranny. It was at that time that there was a deacon, just a small man with a small little work for God, a farmer, but he had led three men from his, 300 men from his community into the battle. They had a skirmish with a British officer and they defeated him and then they went on to the battle to meet Governor Tryon and the rest of the troops, but they got there late. The British had already broken the lines and defeated those men, those regulators, and they caught Benjamin Merrill, the deacon. They took him to downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. Governor Tryon said, hang him. They hung him by his neck. And as that dear Baptist deacon was dying, Governor Tryon said, cut him down. They cut him down And Tryon said, eviscerate him. They eviscerated him, and when his bowels poured out into the cobblestone, they poured sulfur on his entrails, and they set him on fire alive. And Benjamin Merrill died and went home to be with the Lord. Governor Tryon expected that what this was going to do with this small group of people, it was going to drive them... Away, and it was going to drive them to the place and point where they they wouldn't get involved anymore. They wouldn't stand up anymore. But it had the reverse effect. It increased their faith, this trial by fire, and it caused them to burn within them a patriot spirit. It was, as a result of that, men... Of course, like Patrick Henry, heard of what had happened, and it burned within him. Not long there was this framing of the Declaration of Independence in your state. A lot of that was influenced by your Baptist forefathers, just small little groups of people wanting to do something for Jesus and made an impact for liberty and freedom upon men that could do something they couldn't. It was George Washington after that who said, I prefer Baptists to be my chaplains, for they not only have a heart for the men, they will also pick up rifle and fight. You can find pictures very easily of George Washington being baptized by Baptist preacher John Gano as he converted. The point I'm trying to make is this, very simply. You don't have to be much, but you have to be all. You can be. And God can take all that you offer Him and do more with it in a shorter amount of time than you could ever do in the energy Empower the flesh and much, much more than you can do by making excuses that God can't take little you and little us and do anything of value for the kingdom. Consider these thoughts, I pray. Let's stand up. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112. And visit our website at www.svdcpa.org. Until next time,